0: Um, how many of you are looking for something cheap for Christmas to buy for your family? Anybody? Raise your hand right now. Go ahead and admit it, All right, Miss Vicky, I saw you. There's a couple over here. Al, is, is that for Al, Miss Vicky? Is that something cheap? Something cheap. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to read this uh, sort of humorous story, and uh, I hope you get the gist of it for those of you who are looking for something cheap. It was close to Christmas and Tom had been away on a business trip for several weeks so he thought it would be best to bring something home for his wife just something small something little a little gift so he stopped by the mall and walked to the department store and made his way to the perfume counter where a nice lady offered to help him how about some perfume she asked he asked the cosmetic clerk she handed him a bottle of perfume And she told him, as he examined it, it cost $100. That's a bit much. I want something cheaper, Tom said, as he handed it back to her. So the cosmetic clerk reached for a bottle of perfume from underneath the counter. This one was a little bit smaller than the one he had handled before. And she gave it to Tom, and he examined it. And he said, how much is this? And she said, it's $75. To which he said, that's still quite a bit more than I want to pay. I would like to see something cheaper. This time the cosmetic clerk handed him a bottle of perfume that was even smaller than the one he had had before and she informed him while he examined it, this one cost $50. That's still over my budget. I would like to see something a little bit cheaper than this, he complained. Growing disgusted, the clerk disappeared for a moment behind that wall where they keep the stock and appeared after a few moments and brought out a tiny little bottle of perfume and handed it to Tom. As he examined it, he asked, how much is this one? She reluctantly but did inform him it is $25. He said, no, you don't understand what I mean. I'd like to see something really, really cheap. Without thinking, the cosmetic clerk reached for the mirror on the cosmetic counter, handed it to him and said, here is the most cheapest thing I have in my store at the moment. How cheap are you when it comes to Christmas presents? You know, when you give something to somebody, you don't want to give it to them, and that's the first thought that goes to their mind, do you? This person gave me something that is cheap. We're here to describe today a gift that was given at Christmas that was anything but cheap. It was the best that God had to offer. It was the best that Christ could give. It was a little baby that was wrapped in swaddling clothes, born in a manger for you and for me. It is the gift of Christmas. And as we take a look in the next few Sundays, I want us to go to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. I want us to examine what the Scriptures have to say through the prophet Isaiah in unwrapping the gift of Christmas. For that is, in fact, the best gift that you could unwrap Christmas in your life is the gift of Christmas who is Christ himself now Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 God inspired the prophet Isaiah to write this beautiful description of the coming Messiah now this this, this scripture is a prophetic scripture and it's True to all prophetic scripture Scripture not only speaks to the current context To the current culture It not only has a futuristic But an immediate futuristic unfolding It also has an extended lengthy fulfilling In other words When God spoke to the prophet Isaiah He was speaking to the current trend And to the current culture and to the current dilemmas that were going on in his day and time But the scripture in Isaiah chapter 9 is intended to be completely fulfilled 700 years later through the Messiah, through the Savior, through the gift of Christmas And his name is Jesus Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 while it does speak to the context of what was going on in Israel, actually Judah in that day and time, it speaks primarily to us today. For Judah was in sort of between that rock and that hard place. Judah was in a position in which it found its, its neighboring other tribes known as Israel had combined strengths with a, a pagan king, a pagan monarchy, And their forces were so strong that it appeared that Israel was going to come against Judah. And Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, rather than listening to Isaiah and putting his trust in God, sought refuge to the Assyrian nation and made an allegiance with them rather than with God. And as a result of that, God gives Isaiah this prophecy. And as it speaks to the current context, God is speaking through Isaiah to them in that he's saying to them, you should not worry about Israel and that other pagan monarchy that has aligned forces against Judah. God will redeem you and save you from them. But later on, we will learn in Isaiah, if you study it, that another invading army named Assyria will come because of their lack of trust in God and will then plunder the plight of Judah. Judah. And they will lose everything. But in the context of right now, these people are under incredible despair. They're under an incredible darkness. And they have failed to put their hope, their faith, and their trust in Jehovah, in God. And as a result of that, we see God, through the prophet Isaiah, write this beautiful passage. Now, I want to take a look we that context, just sort of bypass that a little bit and quickly go through what it means for us today. Let's fast forward to 700 years from then to the birth of Christ. And let's take a look at what it means today. I'm well aware that it meant something to Isaiah and to the people of Judah in their context, in their day, in their setting. But what does that mean to us today? Well, here's what it means as we unwrap the gift of Christmas. Unwrapping the gift of Christmas, first of all, we discover There are some adjectives that God uses to describe this Messiah And the first adjective that we're going to look at today Is described in the one word, wonderful Wonderful Now, I don't know about you, but there are some who just sort of throw that word out there And it really doesn't mean what it really is intended to mean Because the Bible describes this Messiah as the Wonderful Counselor But as you take the word wonderful by itself, it has a way of helping us understand what Isaiah is saying to them and to us today in regard to this wonderful Messiah, this Savior, this man we know as Jesus, wrapped in swallowing clothes and lying in a manger. He is wonderful. What does wonderful mean? It means indescribable. It means uncontainable it means inexplicable it means wow it is a word that helps us describe something as we look at it and experience it that it is beyond comprehension it is beyond definition it is beyond our description it is so wonderful so marvelous so grandiose that we just can't comprehend it we can't explain it we can't describe it and we cannot completely tell somebody exactly all the ramifications of what this gift really is about. How would you like to get something like that from, from someone for Christmas? You got a gift, Vicki, that's not cheap, but so marvelous, so spectacular, so wonderful that it was beyond understanding, it was inexplicable, it was Unable to understand it. It was just beyond words. You, just, you, were, you were just in awe of what you received. And that is the gift of Jesus. He is a wonderful gift. And I want us to examine in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 6 what it means to be wowed by the wonder of Jesus. The wonder of Jesus. Now I'm not sure we can totally comprehend and understand that. And I'm going to have a hard time explaining it. In this brief time that we have and, and it's and it something I think that, that takes a lifetime to study and to wrap your mind around and even with a lifetime of doing that I don't think you can fully comprehend and understand exactly the wonder of Jesus for the only time you'll completely understand and know the wonder of Jesus is when you stand face to face to him in heaven in that great cloud of witnesses worshiping him and you'll, you'll, you'll be wow <laughs> you know, I thought While I was on earth I thought I, I, I was Wowed by him But in my human finite understanding It doesn't compare To how glorious And how wonderful he really is How do we do that In words How do we paint a picture With words Even as eloquent as the prophet Isaiah To help us understand and unwrap the wonder of Jesus. I'm not sure we can. So let's look at two things. In our attempt, let's talk about the wonder of the promise, the wonderful promise. For Jesus is a wonderful promise. Now in this wonderful promise, we see in verse one of Isaiah chapter nine, we see that he will define hope. He defines hope. This This person, this gift, as we unwrap it, will define the meaning of hope. Notice what it said in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time he was made glorious, the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In short... The two words that started to of pop out to me is the word gloom and the word anguish. God's people were in a state of gloom. They were in a state of despair. They were in a state of depression. They were in a state of despondency. They were filled with gloom and despair. And they believed as they saw the potential of what was about to happen in the oppressor, in this invading army in Israel, and this pagan king who had mounted forces to come against them, they were in a state of despondency and despair and depression. They were in a state of gloom. And that state of gloom brought them to a state of anguish awaited down because of the oppression that was they they believe was about to be brought upon them they were in anguish and as a result of that they had come to terms with their condition and they believed that their condition was helpless they they believed that there was nothing that they could do about their condition and they had lost all hope that anything could possibly be done to save them and to secure their future Helpless and hopeless. They were in a state of gloom and despair, despondency, and a state of anguish. And what God is trying to say to them in this text is basically this. Look beyond your circumstance. Look beyond your situation and see that I am still on the throne and that I am still Lord. I am still God who oversees all that happens in history. For we see, we sometimes like Judah... (laughs) We think somehow as we watch the nightly news and all the things that are going on that God is not orchestrating history. God is Lord over history. And he is orchestrating all the elements and all the events and all the things in order to accomplish and to achieve his will. God is not an absentee landlord. He is still in operation then as He is today in overseeing all the historical aspect about what is going on. And He says, "As you look at even the circumstance and even the situation that you believe is hopeless and has brought despair and gloom and anguish upon you, I am still God. I have not abdicated my throne. And as you see Me and recognize My presence, you can still, in spite of what you see, in spite of what you hear, can." Still still have hope. For hope is still alive as long as God is on the throne. And God never abdicates his throne. He's there. And because he's there, there's still hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, not on your screen, says this. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be sober. This is not written to Baptists. I said this is not written to Baptists. Why is that? Baptists don't drink. One more time. Baptists don't drink. At least not in public. So being sober is not a bad thing. But that's not what he's saying here, being sober. He's saying in this text by sober, don't be influenced by outside, outside sources. Don't be intoxicated by what you see or feel or hear or think by, by what the enemy is doing. Don't be controlled by outside influences, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Why do we put on a breastplate of hope and love? Is to protect our passions and our our desires and our feelings and our emotions. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and protect what you feel and what you, how you respond for a helmet and put on also a helmet of the hope of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. In other words, get logical get rational get get your understanding wrapped around not your circumstances not your situation but the hope that is coming in the salvation of the Lord for God who has not abdicated his throne is going to come and he will save you and he will rescue you and that knowledge that understanding that belief and that faith will give you hope when your circumstance and situation screams for a hopeless state or a Hopeless response to what you believe may or may not happen. And so what we see is Jesus is going to, in a minute, he's going to define for us hope. In spite of your despair, in spite of your gloom, in regard to your circumstances or situation, your helpless, hopeless state, Jesus is going to give you hope. Secondly, he will dispel or he will drive out darkness he will dispel or he will drive out darkness it is a wonderful promise and he will dispel drive out the darkness notes verse 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen not just a light but a great Light, a light that is greater than the darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, the darkness is deep, but the light is greater. On them has that light shone. The people were in darkness. They had walked away from their faith in God and had no longer put their trust and their faith in God. And they were putting their faith in Ahaz, their king, who was looking then for an outside resource, primarily Syria, Assyria to come and to help them against Israel and the pagan king. They were looking not to God, but to their own resources. They were living in darkness. Ahaz, the king, had embraced pagan worship. And they were so much in darkness that they could not see their hopeless and helpless state in the sense that it turned them to God. They were in darkness and that darkness led them to sin and disobedience toward God. They were in darkness. They couldn't see the reality of their own sinfulness before a holy God. But then all of a sudden, this Messiah that is promised to come is going to invade the darkness, to dispel the darkness, to take away the darkness, to drive away that darkness so they can see then the reality of their condition and they can see then that they're not in a helpless, hopeless state but that God as their savior is going to come and is going to rescue them. God's light removes the darkness. His light reveals sin. His light releases grace. His light reconciles us to God and it reflects then the righteousness of Christ. You get that five-point sermon right there? you notice how quickly I did that. The great light. The great light. Jesus said in John eight twelve. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come that you might have light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, invaded the darkness of the world in which he came to over 2000 years ago as a great light to dispel the darkness to reflect and reveal the glory of God and he as he pierced the darkness with his life with his message with his ministry and on his mission dispelled the darkness so that people would see God in him he was the manifestation of the great light in the midst of the darkness then and he still is today we today live in a world that's dark. We live in a dark world. A world that has forgotten about God, that doesn't look to God anymore. A world that is in so much darkness that is living and choosing to live in sin. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can invade this great darkness With a greater light And dispel and dispense the darkness So that the darkness no longer is there These people couldn't see And when you can't see You bump into things You fall down You ever got up in the middle of the night There wasn't a light on or a nightlight on You tried to make your way To a certain place And you stumble and trip over things Especially if you have young children If you know what I'm talking about and these people were in darkness. But the Messiah would be the great light and he would reveal the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He, the great light, shows and reveals the way. Then and the way today and the way for you and for me. And only he can dispel the darkness from your life. Number three, he will dispense A greater joy. He will deliver a greater joy. He will give you a greater joy. For once he gets and removes the darkness, he then replaces it with great joy. Notice verse 3 We have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. Where do they rejoice? They rejoice before God, face to face. In the presence of God, they find their joy. Here he's saying to them, he will supply their need, he will secure their inheritance, and he will strengthen them with joy, a joy that surpasses the circumstance, a joy that overrides the situation, a joy that is not happenstance. That's what happiness is. Happiness is happenstance. You are your. Are Happy because of the circumstance and the situation, but joy is deeper than happiness because you see, when your, your life isn't going well, <laughs> you're not happy. But the joy of the Lord overrides and supersedes the circumstance and the situation. You can be in a terrible circumstance and a horrific situation and still have and display the joy. Of the Lord And that's what he's saying to them Rejoice in the Lord If you remember anything About Luke chapter 2 verse 10 When the shepherds were out in the fields Watching their flock by night And all of a sudden This bright light burst through the darkness And if you notice in verse 10 And the angel said to them Fear not for behold I bring you good news Of what? Great joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. He brings great joy to us. And so, as we consider then the circumstances, the situations that, that we, may, we may be in today, I mean, and, and, and it's fair to, I think, say that there are probably some of us in this room today that would probably say we, we wish we had a, a different circumstance in our life, that we wish that our situation was different. You know what I'm talking about? I wish my circumstance and my situation was different. And you can dwell on that. And you can camp out there for a long time. And and let it rob your happiness. But don't let it rob your joy. Because the wonderful promise in the gift of Jesus helps us supersede and rise above our circumstance and our situation and to rejoice in the Lord in spite, in spite of what we think we have or we think we don't have. Because the reality is in the gift of Jesus you have everything. Number four, we need to see not only the fact that he dismisses great joy, but that he will defeat our oppressor. This Messiah, this Savior, this child wrapped in swaddling clothes, born in a manger in a little town of Bethlehem, will defeat our oppressor. Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. It's interesting, isn't it, that you see there's a yoke A yoke is something that's placed upon two animals that binds them together and and holds them captive and makes them go where the person who's driving wants them to go. He's under submission of someone else. He's outside of himself. The staff is something that, that sort of gives you support because you're under a heavy burden. And the rod is something that is used by the oppressor to beat you with, to subdue you to his desires. Who is that? For us today. Who is that? Who? Notice what happens. It says. You have broken. As on the day of Midian. God has broken it. On the birth of Christ. He invaded Satan's territory. And he broke the change. He he loosened then the possibility for us. Then to live free. You notice Isaiah 9, 6, we're going to talk about that in the next couple of Sundays, and notice that that it describes this Messiah as the mighty God. This baby wrapped in swaddling clothes was mighty God, not just God, but mighty, and he is mightier than our oppressor. He is saying to those to which it was written, God is mightier than your oppressor. I mean, Israel and this pagan king, they seem pretty mighty, but God is mightier than your oppressor. To us today, he says, we may have an oppressor and his name is Satan and his way of suppressing us is called sin, but Satan and sin is not mightier than God. And this baby, once he invades our lives and becomes our Savior and our Lord, he will defeat the oppressor. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been given victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and the oppressor is no longer Able to oppress us. He no longer has dominion over us. We are now victorious through the victory of Christ. So, why is it that we act as if we are defeated when in fact we are victorious already because of our faith and our trust in Him? We have the victory and we should live victorious lives. For we have been set free from the power of sin and Satan as well. He defeats our oppressor, He's already defeated. Isn't that great? Number five, he will then deliver peace. Once the oppressor is gone, the end result is peace. Verse five, for every boot of the the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is he saying by that? He's saying that God will take all the garments that were used against us in battle and he will destroy them. All of the weapons and all of the things that the enemy used, the oppressor used to defeat us in battle, and the reason why his garments are bloody is because he's bloody from the battle and having had victory over his. You know, he's oppressed them, he's defeated them, he's he's killed them. Now the blood that that of his of his enemy is now on him. Satan, it, it, all of those garments are gone. They have been. They have been cleared. They have been destroyed so that no longer will he be able to wallow in his success. Notice it says in verse 9:6 that his name shall be called what? Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. The only way to know and to have peace, real lasting peace, is in Jesus. For he is the Prince of Peace. Luke 2, 13 and 14, we see the shepherds out of the field again. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those to whom he, with whom he is pleased. What did the angel say he came to do? To establish and to give? Peace. Peace what? With those who, whom he is pleased. He came to reconcile us with God and to give us peace. Between us and God. You see, the Bible says in Romans three twenty three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and Romans six twenty three says the wage of sin is death. We've heard that, those of us in the church, until you know, we, we know that by heart. But that sin separates us from God. It causes enmity between us and God, hostility between us and God. But Jesus came to take away that hostility so that we might be reconciled with God and have peace now with God through Jesus. Romans 5 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the world needs peace today, doesn't it? More than anything else, it needs peace. How is the world gonna have peace? Through a treaty? Through a president? Through a new world order? It's through one person and one person alone and his name is Jesus. For he is the author of peace. Now, notice the wonderful person, and we're going to go through this very, very quickly. Notice, not only is there a wonderful promise, but there's a wonderful person. Notice the the early part of verse 6. This person is, is described for us, first of all, and he's revealed to us. Isaiah reveals him in his inclusivity. What this Messiah came to give, what, this, this person, what God promises through this Messiah is, first of all, inclusivity. Where do you get that? It says, in the first part of verse 6, for unto us. I think sometimes we jump over that and we go right to the next things that are described. But that for unto us or to us is huge. Because you see, it's not just meant for somebody else. It's not just meant for them. It's just not meant for Israel or for Judah. Or, or for, or, but it's meant for us. It's meant for me and it's meant for you. He is inclusive in these promises and in this gift called Jesus. He came to us he was born to us. He was given to us, to you, and to me. He loved us and cared that much for us, and he saw us in our lostness and our despair and our hopelessness, and he came for us, to us, because of us, because of you, he came. It's a personal glyph. It's, it's an inclusive gift. Luke 2.10, beautiful passage. When the shepherds, again, were out on the field Verse 10 said, and the angels said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good, good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you, he's talking to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord unto you, to you shepherds. Now if you think about that for a minute, shepherds were on the low the bottom shelf, they're on the, the low totem pole, they were they were obscure, they were unimportant, they were they were shepherds. They were not high on society's circle of influence. They were nasty and stinky and they slept mostly out in the field and they were tending to sheep, which are the dumbest animals that you could possibly tend to. They were were low in importance. They were not considered important at all. And yet, out in the field watching their flock by night, an angel came to the shepherds and he said, unto you, the least likely of all people to hear the good news, you shepherds are the ones that I choose to be recipients of the glorious news. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. Because I'm not very high on God's totem pole either. On society's totem pole. I mean, when you think about it, who are you? And more than likely, you're, you're a figment of your own imagination if you think you're something important. You know what I'm saying? Because we often build ourselves up to be more important than we truly, really are. And we're really insignificant outside of our little bitty scope of influence I remember one time when I was, uh, I was in a group of pastors and we were talking to a large pastor in a, with a large pastor in, in fellowship in Dallas. They were running 20 plus 25,000 back then. And we were in awe by him when he walked in the room. I mean, who pastors a church running 25,000? And he came in and he, he said, us right off the bat. He said, you know, a lot of people think my church is big, but I can go across the street in, in, in the mall over here and walk around two or three times and not a single person will recognize me. So I'm not really as big as... As really sometimes I think I am. And the true fact is that, that while we may elevate ourselves to a position of importance. And think that we're actually something when we're really not. He came for you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. A savior who is Christ the Lord. For you. A little bitty, unimportant, no name, you. For you. You're important to him. A wonderful person with a wonderful promise of inclusivity. Number two, notice his divinity. The wonderful person in Jesus, we see his divinity. He, he helps us see this child wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger. in A little town called by them. He is divine. He is God-man. It says a child is born a ch- don't miss that a child is born he's just not any child as wonderful as the birth of children could possibly mean and be in your life and my life and I I have I had the privilege of, of seeing three children brought into the world and, and eight grandchildren. It, there's nothing more marvelous nor, no, nor anything more spectacular than, than the birth of, of a child, a human being, being brought into the world. But this child is unlike any other child. He is fully man, but he is fully God. He is divine in nature. John 1.1 1, 1 said that flesh... It, it said that, that, that the word became flesh and it dwelt among men. Jesus, God, preexistent in heaven, became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, our name is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God among us, God in the flesh. For the very first time, God came down from heaven through the form of a baby named Jesus. And this child was God, fully God and fully man. Isaiah seven fourteen says, Therefore the Lord himself gave you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. A virgin. This is... This is not only talking to their culture and their context then, but to 700 years later where a virgin would then conceive and bear a son and his name would be Jesus. Luke one twenty six. Mary is talking to the angel who invades her life. And in the sixth month, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named joseph a descendant of david the virgin's name is Mary. twice in that context she is called what a virgin that means she has never known a man intimately luke 128 skip down to that context then the angel went to her and he said greetings to you who are highly favored the lord is with you he just said, you're going to be the mother of a child. And she says in verse 34, how can this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, verse 38, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger in a little town of Bethlehem, is the Son of God, fully divine, fully God, and fully man. Don't ask me how... To understand that, you can't wrap your brain around that. You don't understand it, do you? Anybody understand that? Anybody? Not a single person here understands that. But but I'm compelled to believe it. Because if he's not fully God as well as fully man, then he can't die for my sins against God. He has to have the full nature of God. And how can I relate to a a God like Jesus if he's not human who suffers as we suffer, who sought to live his life, as and he knows all the complexities of your life, the aches and the pains and the troubles of your day-to-day life. Why? Because he's fully human, but he's also fully God. He is the most relational God you will ever know because he's fully divine. Notice number three, his generosity. Isaiah reveals his generosity, for unto us, not only is a child born, but a son is given. A son is given. A son. Whose son? Joseph's son? Not. God's son. And this son was given. He was presented as an offering, as a gift, as a sacrifice on the altar called Calvary, the Lamb of God, our Savior, to take upon himself our sin against God and dying in our place so that we could be reconciled with God. You know, Mark Mark clearly talks about the testimony of Joseph in this whole scenario of of the, the birth of the Christ child in verse 18. Mark records, but as he, Joseph, considered these things, he was trying to put her away quietly. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Supernatural in vitro fertilization. The first ever in human history. Supernatural. Supernatural. Not put together in some chemical lab somewhere but supernaturally through the holy spirit she will bear a son verse 24 and you shall call his name jesus why for he will save his people from their sins from the onslaught from the get-go jesus was given as the lamb of god to take upon himself our sin and die in our place if we put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. John 316 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whosoever believeth in him would not perish and have everlasting life. God is a generous God. Generosity is his nature. Is it yours? Are you cheap? hard to be generous isn't it why is that mine mine is it really yours no it's his it's easy to be generous when i when i i come to the understanding that everything i think i possess is really his i'm just the steward of that which he has given me including my salvation because i didn't earn or work for anything Everything is because of the generosity of God in my life And his grace Because if I got what I deserve He surely wouldn't be, be what I have today And nor would it be with you And yet we're awful stingy with what belongs to God, aren't we? It's more than just about the plate That we're going to pass in a little bit Isn't it? A generous God Lastly Lastly he reveals his sovereignty. As we close with this, he reveals his sovereignty. Look at the last part of verse 6 that we want to look at today. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That word government is an interesting word. It means literally sovereignty. It means authority. It means power it means dominance this baby born in bethlehem in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes is going to rule the world he's a ruler he's a king he is sovereign he has authority he has power And the government shall be on his shoulder, meaning that he is going to wear a kingly robe. And there are many that believe that after dying on a cross and being placed in a tomb and then bursting from that tomb and now ascending to the Father, he now wears that priestly, kingly robe and all of the authority that is due him because of who he is. But some also believe that it's also referencing uh, the return of Christ and the earthly kingdom that he's going to sit upon. For one of these days he will return, as he promised he would, and he will sit upon the throne of King David. And he will rule not only Jerusalem, not only Judah, not only Israel, but he will rule the universe from his throne in Jerusalem. He's the king. He's sovereign. He has I wonder if, he has, if he's sovereign And if he has authority over your life Luke 1, 31. Again, you take a look at the passage of scripture As we see Talking to Mary You will be with child and give birth to a son And you will give him the name Jesus Notice in verse 32 He will be great And will be called the son of the most high The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. Forever. And his kingdom will know no end. His kingdom will know no end. Wow. Ponder the wonder of Jesus. Those are the words that I saw one time. I'll never forget them as long as I live. Uh, I've had the privilege of being almost a pastor of a, of a, of a, for almost 40 years. It's a long time, in it? I started when I was one. So I'm 41, in case you're trying to do the arithmetic. And uh, there was a church, First Baptist Church of Buna, that contacted us, way down in southeast Texas, almost in Louisiana. And uh, they got my resume and and uh, I, you know, I was young and pretty, pretty goofy back then. I'm still goofy, but I'm not young. But anyway, um, and so I decided I would go scope it out. I remember driving by First Baptist Church of Buna, Texas, and um, on their marquee they had a sign, and it was Christmas time, and it said, "Ponder the wonder of Jesus." I don't know what you're thinking now, but when I saw that sign, I said, these people are a bunch of rednecks. Ponder the wonder of Jesus. I could just hear it. We're going to ponder the wonder of Jesus. And that Texas accent, Brother Mark, East Texas accent, ponder the wonder of Jesus. You still got it, don't you? Ponder. My wife still has it. I had a lady the other day ask me if we were married because my accent is different than hers. <laughs> Ponder the wonder of Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, this week when I'm studying this passage about trying to ponder the wonder of Jesus, that's pretty deep. And it's not redneck at all. Because I have a hard time wrapping my, my brain around the wonder of Jesus. To ponder the wonder of Jesus. I want to encourage you this holiday season To ponder The wonder Of Jesus Who is he To you What is he To you What has he Given To you You think you You got it You think you got him You think you understand him Chances are you don't. Chances are you don't. I got it all figured out. No, you don't. I know all there is to know about him. No, you don't. I know what it means for Christ to be my Savior. Not really. Take some time this holiday season and reflect and ponder and dwell, meditate, pray about, consider, study. The wonder. The wonder of Jesus he is beyond words he is inexplicable he is not understandable in his complexity and in his totality he is beyond your finite comprehension I guarantee it for he is wonderful and his name is wonderful I'm old school did you know that sometimes I'm old school Sometimes. His name is wonderful. Sing it with me. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. He is the mighty King, master of everything. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. Turn your name and say, you did better than that. Come on. Let's stand up. Man. Come on, church. Come on, church. Starting to get hungry now. Stand up. Say it with me. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He is the mighty king, master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. Is he wonderful? So then to the question as we come to the close on that last slide. Here's the question. Have you unwrapped the gift of Christmas? Have you reached out and received him unto yourself as your Savior? Have you placed your faith and trust in him as your Savior? For God so loved the world, that's you. And if he can love some shepherds and reach out to them, he can reach out to you. And his desire is to save you, to redeem you, to reconcile you to God, to put you in right relationship with God so you can leave this place today saved from your sin against God. Do you need to place your faith and trust in him today? In a moment, we're going to sing a scripture, we're going to sing a, a song. We're going to invite you to come down, take the hand of one of the pastors, and say, Today, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. Have you done that another time, another place, but you've never followed through and followed him in baptism? We invite you to come. Maybe you've prayed about it, and this is a place that God wants to lead you to serve as a member of this church when we invite you to come. Or maybe you just need to reflect while we sing this song. As you ponder the wonder of Jesus, and in gratitude and praise and admiration and love for him, give glory to him for all that he has given you this holiday season. Because as you unwrap that package and see him for who he really is, you should be wowed. You should be amazed. You should be beyond words, for he is beyond comprehension.